I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 148 of the Intercooler Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Um, a bit of a fun one this week. We're talking about feats of great endurance in cars. Um, you know, those heroic efforts, typically in motorsport, um, against the odds or um, over enormous distances or great periods of time um, and often coming through to win. Um, there are some remarkable tales in this podcast, I think. Uh, it's the kind of stuff that just doesn't seem to go on these days, but you know, back in the 30s, up to the, up, all the way up until sort of the 70s, we were, there were examples of genuinely astonishing feats of endurance at the wheel of a motor car. Uh, so enjoy the episode. Andrew, you know when you have to drive, maybe after work, in busy traffic for three hours, you know, a yeah. reasonable motorway journey, you get home yeah. at eight or nine o'clock and realise that you're exhausted. Yes. I think, I think some of these tales are going to make that kind of experience seem a little bit pathetic, aren't they? Um, because, because we're talking great feats of great endurance in cars. Um, yeah. And actually history is littered with some extraordinary examples, isn't it? Um, but just to kind of give some context, um, what's your, what do you think, what was your sort of longest one hit journey? Well, I mean, I don't know. I've done some. I've done some silly stunts. So about three years ago, um, me and a bloke called Mike Sayer from Bentley, we did fifteen countries in twenty-four hours um, in a Continental GT. Um, but that was fun because we got along, um, and we were sharing the driving. Um, I did Africa to England on a tanker fuel, and I did almost all. I did all bar about two hours of that. Um, but that was fine because I was either on my own or. Um, yeah, well, I was just, or, or I was resting up. I, I find the most difficult endurance ones are where you, you, the circumstances aren't right. So the one I'm going to nominate is in, when would it be? 
2004, so the 10th anniversary of Senna's passing, um, Autocar decided that they wanted to go to all the places in Europe that were significant to his um, to his history. And we took a Honda NSX because obviously that's the car that he is meant to have had a hand in developing. And the problem was, and I'm not going to name him, but I'll never work with him again, um, <laughs> the photographer who came with me, uh, who refused to drive the car. I take the photograph, yes, you drive yeah, the car. That's the line, he also He also refused... Um, I should have just told him to shove it, but I didn't because we had a week together in this thing and we had to get along. He also refused, because there's no storage place in an NSX, uh, he refused to let me have any uh, any food in the car or anything like that. So um, so I left Wales in the morning, where I lived at the time, um, picked him up, I don't know, London somewhere, and we went to Dover, got on the... I don't know whether the tunnel would be open, but I don't know, but got across the channel somehow and started driving towards our first port of call, which was Estoril. Yeah, in, God. Uh, in, in Lisbon, wow. um, where... Uh, and it was always going to be a two-day trip. You, you know, Wales to Lisbon is, 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 is not something that you can do uh, in one day, not unless you're a lunatic. Anyway, so uh, we thought, I thought we'd, I'd sort of break the back of it and then find somewhere to stay. But the hotels we passed were not acceptable to him. <laughs> and he said, I don't want to stay there, don't want to stay there, don't want to stay there. Um, and eventually we were in a place called Burgos, which is not much north of Madrid, before eventually we found somewhere that he was prepared to stay. So I think that was 1,100 miles in a day, which I wasn't expecting to do on my own, without you know, having to eat something at the service station because I wasn't allowed to have it in the car. I should have, why didn't I tell him to shove it? I, well, I know why I didn't tell him to shove it. Um, and then we eventually rolled up at this hotel. Uh, I'm getting slightly off piece with this now, but I'm thinking you mentioned I've got to get it off my chest. And um, surprise, surprise, the restaurant had shut because it was not by this so so bloody late. At which stage, he tore several strips off the poor, completely innocent young girl behind reception. And so I went upstairs <clears throat> and I I rang my wife and said, "Tomorrow morning, I'm driving to Madrid Airport, and I'm going to say to him, I don't care which one of us gets on the plane, <laughs> but you can choose." Uh, and she talked me out of that because I'd recently gone freelance and I was going to lose a very big job and probably never work for Autocar again. So to me, it's not just the journey, it's it's the circumstance. And that's probably the most tired, that's the most exhausting yeah. journey I've ever done because I just hated every second of it. Actually, I hadn't really thought about that. But the company, if the company's wrong or there's something Awful. about it, yeah, it's just dreadful. Um, okay, so mine, I think this was back in 2012, around there. Um, I did Bristol to Modena in a day. Which is, according to Google trip. Maps, yeah, according to Google Maps now, it's seventeen hours and a thousand and thirty-eight miles. Yeah, um, so not quite eleven hundred, but close. Um, good car though, Mercedes CLS sixty-three AMG shooting brake. Oh, good car for that kind of drive. You'd um, be quicker in a diesel though, wouldn't you? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure we use plenty of fuel. So I was on my own. I was working for our mate. Chris Harris at the time. Um, he was making films, and I basically I was pretty much unemployed back then. Um, and so I was just knocking about with him. Um, and I had to drive because they wanted this enormous drone, which is actually an octocopter. They wanted that at the track down in Modena. Um, and you couldn't take the batteries on a plane. So someone, some poor sod, had to drive on their own all the way in one hit. Um, and that was me. Um, and it's, they wanted this big drone, this octocopter, because it had to carry a chunky camera. I think it was a a Sony FS700, but, you know, that's a... It's bigger than your forearm. It's a substantial camera, that yeah. thing. Um, 
And of course, now you just do it with a little tiny DJI drone thing that goes in your hand luggage on the plane. Um, yeah. So it's only in 10 years it's changed that much. But, but back then you needed a, effectively a remote-controlled helicopter. A massive, yeah, it was. It was exactly that. It was enormous. Yeah. Um, and I yeah, did it all in one hit through France. I do remember having to stop somewhere in France for um, a nap uh, and then finally getting to Modena late at night and just getting to my hotel room and crashing. Um, but yeah, 17 hours, good thousand miles plus on your own. It's quite yeah. a lot, isn't it? Oh, I've remembered one more. Go on. Well, it wasn't actually a very long journey, but it was on the Sunday evening. This was after Bentley won Le Mans in 2003. Um, and I'd been down there. I, 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 for the duration of its three-year Le Mans campaign, I wrote all their columns, and I just didn't write anything professionally in journalistic terms about Bentley at all. I just became not a journalist from a Bentley point of view for those three years because I was writing a book, and I was kind of like part of the team. And so I'd been down there for eight days <clears throat> by that by the time that Sunday afternoon came along. And I'd been up all, essentially the entire race because we were putting out press statements every hour. And then when it was all over about six o'clock, um, I got into the Arnage they'd very kindly provided for me and drove it back to Wales. And it, 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 what I do, I do remember hallucinating. I do remember thinking all no. I can do is get to Calais, <laughs> get to Calais, get on the train, and then I'll have half an hour's kit and that'll be enough. But I can remember driving somewhere near Calais. I can remember seeing a man standing at the side of the road waving an oil flag at me, who wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> wow! Actually, was... I can I can absolutely understand that. I've done Le Mans on the a press team on the press team side before, and you you might get your head down a little bit, but you are up all night and you are writing um, yeah. throughout the day, throughout the night, and then there's yeah. the final press release to do. And these days, of course, social media as well. And yeah, yeah. by the end of it, you're you feel it's almost out of body. You just, you don't feel like you're in the room. Yeah. It's probably, it's not the time to be driving back to Wales, is it? Nevertheless, all of this pales into insignificance compared to what we're about to talk about. Doesn't it just? Yeah. Um, All right, well, I'll kick us off then with Tazio Nuvolari. Yeah. Um, 1948, 55 years old. He's a very poorly man, chronic asthma. um, And he spent most of winter in bed on Lake Garda where the doctors hoped that the milder climate um, would improve the conditions of his lungs. Not mm. a well man. He's won everything by this point, hasn't he? Absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. He, he was the great, wasn't he? Even at that he, time. He, he, he was the greatest. I don't think anybody really would argue that he was anything other than the greatest driver before the war. I mean, mm. there are other candidates, someone like Rudy Caracciola, Bernd Rosemeyer, but no, Nuvolari was, was the man. Yeah, uh, he, he, Enzo Ferrari, he raced for Enzo Ferrari when Enzo Ferrari was running Alfa Romeo up until uh, his dying day uh, Enzo Ferrari said that Nuvolari was the man mm. and he saw them all yeah. he saw them all so uh, it was Enzo who went back to um, Nuvolari and lured him out of bed with one last go at the Mille Miglia um, and Nuvolari apparently was unable to resist and so he set off um, the competition is strong um, and some you know in, at some point in the race the car loses the bonnet at some point they lose a mudguard um, but somehow Nuvolari builds up a lead other people have issues Nuvolari builds up a lead and eventually he's leading the whole thing by 29 minutes he's coughing up blood um, yeah. he's extremely unwell in this thing it's amazing that he manages to drive it at all um and it's 
only when his suspension breaks that he has to admit defeat and retire from the race. But he was leading didn't the he, thing by half an hour, almost. Didn't his seat collapse as well, and he ended up yeah. sitting on a crate of oranges? Exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and apparently, this is what I read, as soon as he was forced to retire, Nuvolari, calm and silent, asked for a bed in which to rest. <laughs> you would, wouldn't you? Well, you would, you? wouldn't you? You would. <laughs> Bloody hell. Yes. Go on, let's have one of yours. Um, where should we go? Um, well, there's going to be. Well, is there going to be more than one? I mean, Le Mans is is the kind of when you think of endurance feats, Le Mans is what you think of, isn't mm, it? Yeah, uh, it is. and there and, and there are so many. There was a bloke. Actually, he was he went on to win it with Nouvellari, um, but there's a bloke called Raymond Sommer who's one of my heroes. He was like a Belgian aristocrat um, who tended to race private teams because he hated you know authority figures and being told what to do and that sort of thing. Um, and he in 1932 won Le Mans with a bloke called Luigi Chinetti. He went on to found Ferrari in North America, became one of the legends of the sport. But in that particular race, Chinetti got ill about two hours in. And Sommer literally did the rest of the race solo and won it. And I think that's probably just about, well, the only other exception I'll get to in a minute, um, the, the longest stint ever done by someone t- who then went on and won the race. Yeah. Um, 17 years later, in 1949, Luigi Chinetti does the same thing. He's, and this is Ferrari's first win of the more. And it's not Ferrari's car, it's a private car. It's owned by a chap called Lord Selsden. And Lord Selsden hired Chinetti, uh, who wasn't a young man anymore, to drive this car. Uh, and he got sick about an hour and a bit into the race. And so Chinetti did, 17 years later, what someone had done for him 17 years earlier and drove the rest of the race on his own and won it. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? It is nuts. It is nuts. Um, but, yeah, I mean, are, you, are we going to talk about Pierre Levesque in 1952? Do you want to do that one? It's, yeah, now's a good time to do that one because that is an extraordinary story. Well, well, Pierre Levesque has passed into history as, very sadly, um, the bloke who has been, I think, blamed for the 1955 Le Mans crash. Yeah. But he was, you know, in my view, it wasn't his fault at all. It was entirely the fault of Mike Hawthorne, who pulled out, um, overtook him, slammed on the brakes because he was going into his pits. Because this when there wasn't a pit lane. The pits were just at the side mm. of the track. Um, and Levesque swerved to avoid him, went up the back of an Austin Healy and ended up in the crowd. Um, he died... 80-something people died. Worst disaster in motor racing history. And that, sadly, is what he's famous for. Mm. Uh, he's rather less famous for the fact that in 1952, he entered Le Mans in a Talbot. I think maybe I should call it a Talbot. I'm not sure. And tried to do the whole thing single-handed. And he damn near did it. <sighs> he damn near did it. He was about 23 hours. The reason he did it was he had a co-driver. You had to have a co-driver. The rule said you have to have, to, you have, to have two drivers, but the, the rules didn't say they had to both drive. Yeah. So there's a chap called René Marchand, who he was meant to be driving with, but he believed he had heard something a bit off in the engine. And he thought that only he had the mechanical sympathy to manage this problem for that period of time. And that if, if he put Marchand in the car, he'd blow it up. Or at least that was the excuse mm. that he gave. I suspect increasingly as the race went on, he was thinking, blimey, this is my, this is my, this is my shot at history. Um, and yeah, and he so nearly did it. 
but I mean, but you know, but it was a hero to zero in an instance. You're 23 and a bit hours in, he missed a gear, blew the engine, game over. It's such a pity, isn't it? Because that would be one of the great stories. Winning yeah. Le Mans on your own, and he got within an hour of doing it. Um, yeah. Poh, that is extraordinary. But, yes, but there is a bloke... Okay, he didn't win it, but there is a, but there's one bloke in the history of Le Mans, I know, who has done it solo and completed it. A bloke called Eddie Hall. Yeah. Eddie Hall was a dude. Okay. <laughs> Eddie Hall was raised. So Eddie Hall had a, uh, in 1934, he bought a Bentley. Um, Bentley was by this stage owned by Rolls Royce. Um, and he wanted to race it at Le Mans in 1936. Um, but the 1936 Le Mans is the only Le Mans in history that's been called off due to industrial action. There wasn't a Le Mans in 1936. And then all the stuff happened and then war broke out. Um, but in 1950, he was by this stage 50 years old. He still had the car. And he thought, so I'm going to, he thought, I'll tell you what, I'll enter this 16-year-old car, which was never designed to do Le Mans anyway. It was a Derby Bentley, it was a touring car. Um, and see what happens. So he entered Le Mans, and he too had a co-driver who never got in the car. And he just drove and drove, I think he came eighth. He did the entire oh race himself. And when Dennis Jenkinson, the legendary continental correspondent for Motorsport magazine, asked him what he did about... Um, how can we put this, cause of nature mm. and that sort of thing. He simply replied, green overalls, old boy. <laughs> and just let it happen. And just let it happen. Plus so, hell. Now he, is the one, yeah, yeah. So he is the one. He is the one person I'm aware of and I've never, ever heard of any other person to even reclaimed it uh, to have done Le Mans solo. Doing Le Mans Success, solo. That's successfully. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, actually, you mentioned Jenks and... Uh, Everyone knows about Moss, Millimelia, 1955 with Jenks. But um, maybe the great feat of endurance there was then driving onto. Where did he drive onto? Some, a party in, was it in Germany somewhere? No, no, no. no. Well, there, there was a party um, in Italy. Oh, okay. But he went off, right, yeah. Other reasons. After the party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He then drove to Germany. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you said that Fangio had given Moss some exciting tablets. Yeah, he was completely. He was completely, and and and, and you know, Sterling was completely open and honest about this. There was absolutely no sense of shame or subterfuge mm. or gaining an unfair advantage or anything else. It was. I mean, he would have regarded in the same way that I don't know eating the right food or doing some exercise or you know having bigger carburetors. You know, so it was just another way of gaining a performance advantage. Mm. Um, and Fangio gave him these these little pills. Do you know what? I suspect they were all on him. Mm. Oh, you'd have to. You know, if you me. think about what you had to do to drive a thousand miles around Italy in a day on your own, well, I mean, some, something he did, I've never gave it, but you did, you did all the driving, absolutely flat strapped as fast as you possibly can, you know, and, and none of it on sort of long straight roads or any, any opportunity to mm. have any kind of rest at all. Do that in what, 10 and a bit hours, which he did. Um, on top of all the prep you would have done, because there would have been, you know, Mercedes Benz would, I mean, I think Moss did five or six laps of the track mm. um, before he ever got to the race. I mean, how could you do that if you weren't on drugs? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's uh, let, let alone go to the party, let alone then jump into your, I presume it would have been an SL or something, and then just yeah. blithely drive over the mountains to, to Stuttgart. Yeah, that is some feat of endurance. Right, let me give you another yeah. one. This one's an obvious one, actually, um, but it's so obvious it does have to be mentioned. 
1976 Italian Grand Prix. Um, Ricky Lauda qualified yeah. fifth, finished fourth. Not remarkable, except that this was just six weeks after he had been read the last rites following his crash at the Nürburgring. Um, everyone knows about that crash. Horrendous accident. Um, terrible burns to his face, and he carried those scars for the rest of his life. Um, mm. But injuries to his lungs as well. Um, mm. And many presumed that, presumed that he would be killed. Um, and he's in the midst of a title fight with James Hunt when he had that crash. Um, the amazing thing is, so he read the last rites. Six weeks later, he misses two Grand Prix, um, but six Slacker. weeks... <laughs> six weeks later he's back at the wheel at the Italian Grand Prix scoring yeah. points um, yeah. and do you know what I, I think it's great that James Hunt won the title that year because well British driver McLaren um, it's a good story but actually it's a better story if Lauder goes on to win the title isn't it and he but, was leading the championship by three points going into the final race the Japanese Grand and Prix gave it and the, it, again it's a it's a well-known story that the conditions were horrendous and he chose not to race. He, he retired willingly from that race. Lauda did. Um, James Hunt finished third, scored enough points to win the title. Um, scored so, a part, he scored enough points to win the title by a point. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and, that and, was, I mean, that was, but for the Nürburgring, that was Lauda's championship yeah. all day long. Yeah. All day long. No question, and and and, and he and he would be and to me, I don't think there's any doubt he'd have been champion if he'd uh, if he hadn't pulled out of um, the race at Fuji. Yeah, and I think that you know Monza was. I think I think there were two completely different kinds of incredible courage that season. Monza was one, and I think Fuji was the other. Yeah, you know, I I I think it is much much braver to go to the world. This is stupid. I'm not doing this. It's going to cost me a world championship. I don't care. Mm. Than to stay on, um, <sighs> you know, in that weather, doing that, taking those risks. I just thought it was a staggeringly brave thing to do. Yeah. Um, but yes, but Monza was. And the, at Monza, there are photos, there's video footage of him peeling his balaclava off from mm. these fresh burn wounds and just peeling bits of his face away. Um, yeah. You know, his face is weeping into his balaclava. It's horrendous, but he... Uh, amazing courage. So the thing about that year and the accident at the Nürburgring that gets me is that most people watching would have assumed that his life was over because of that crash. And if yeah. not his life, then his career. Yeah. Actually, before the accident, he won 12 Formula One Grand Prix. After it, he won 13 before the accident, he won one world championship. After it, he won two world championships. Yeah. After the accident, he set up his airline. Um, he did so much more. And then he was part of Mercedes' success until recently, wasn't he, when he died. So yeah. actually, he achieved so much more in his career and his life after that accident. But I think, I think the accident did ultimately kill him. Um, mm. He had a lung transplant, didn't he? Right. Uh, not long before he died, maybe a year or so before he died. Um, mm. And clearly, um, you know that you know that 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 would have been caught. I presume it was caused by the accident, and he, and he didn't live for long thereafter. So I think ultimately, he'd probably still be here, but for that accident. Yeah, it just um, took fifty years to finish him off. It, it just took however long to do it. Yeah, bloody hell! Mm. Remarkable man. Yeah, really, really extraordinary. Don't make him like that anymore, yeah. do they? Um, no. Right, let's have one of yours. Let's go back in time. Nineteen hundred and seven. 
Le Monde, French newspaper, had this wacky idea of having a race, not from sort of Paris to Dieppe or even Paris to Madrid, which is where the great motor races of the era had been held up until that moment, but from what was then called Peking to Paris. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> It's just over 9,000 miles in 1907. I don't know if you've ever seen a 1907 car, but they're not very sophisticated <laughs> no. and they're not very reliable. Um, well, think about the London to Brighton run. Um, yeah. Okay, some of those cars will be a bit older, but similar sort of technology, isn't it? Yeah, so the, the cutoff for London to Brighton is 904. Yeah. Yeah. So but those sorts of cars, I mean, yeah. essentially, if not technically, veteran cars. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so there's one bloke called Prince Scipione Borghese. He turns up in a massive Etala, and he's got all the money in the world, and he's, he, he, he's pretty sorted, and he goes on and he wins the race. But there's a bloke called Charles Goddard, um, who sounds English, but he's not. He's Dutch. Um, and he persuades a bloke called Jacobus Spiker. You remember the Spiker brand? Because mm. it came back, yeah. Okay, so the original Spiker um, made cars back then, and he persuaded Spiker to... Um, he's completely broke this bloke um, he was a con man and he persuaded Spiker to loan him a car and a load of spares he was so broke he had to sell all the spares just to pay for his passage to Peking um, and then in the race um, he nicked fuel borrowed fuel he was completely skinned um, but one of the things that is extraordinary about this bloke Charles Goddard he was also in another way he was scrupulously honest to the extent that when his car breaks down in the middle of the middle of Mongolia somewhere um, and he needs some new bits, um, they send a chap out with the bits on the train and he parks, what does he do? He puts the car on the train, goes 1,500 miles to meet this bloke, then turns around and goes 1,500 miles in the wrong direction um, to back to where he started where he fits the parts, gets in the, gets in the car, and then heads off to Paris again. Um, they catch up with him somewhere in Europe, arrest him, um, and so his co-driver has to drive the car over the line. Um, w- among problems that they had was they got a hole in their differential, which he repaired by using a wad of bacon he found from somewhere. Um, <laughs> they broke down in the desert, and they were going to die until he had the bright idea of drinking the water in the radiator. That saved their lives. Um, it just goes on and on and on and on. There's a book, it was written in 1964 by a bloke called Alan Andrews, called The Mad Motorists. Um, mm. And it's about that race. But it's particularly about this bloke called Charles Goddard, who is a total, utter lunatic. I don't think anybody knows what happened to him. He just kind of disappeared. I suspect somebody did him in. But um, it's long since out of print, but, I, but you can find copies. They're not expensive. And it is an absolutely astonishing read. Um, so if wow. you want to sort of amuse yourself, The Mad Motorist by Alan Andrews and the story of Charles Goddard, if that doesn't grip your soul, um, well, it will. Mm. Fantastic. Uh, okay, let's go to uh, 1968. We're back at the Nürburgring. Um, Jackie Stewart. Oh, yeah. And yes, he. so this is, this is the then and now probably the world's most challenging circuit. Um, and Jackie Stewart is racing with a broken wrist because um, he was recently crashed a Formula 2 car, broken his wrist, so he's, he's got it in a, like a plastic cast. Um, horrendous conditions. Um, this is a quote from, it's from his book actually, from Jackie Stewart's book. Visibility is so pathetically poor, I can't even see Chris's car, Chris Amon that is I think, in front of me. I'm simply driving into this great wall of spray. 
I pull out to pass, but the spray is dense and I'm driving blind. Um, actually, that's something worth con- considering on its own, isn't it? The driving in those conditions, in those cars, that you really wouldn't stand much of a chance of surviving in if you went into the back of someone. Um, that's, there's a bravery in that, keeping your foot down. Uh, and you, you can't lift off because the bloke behind isn't going to. If you do, he's going to go into the back of you, so you've just got to keep going. Um, so he, Stuart qualified sixth, broken wrist. But at the end of the first lap, um, he's leading. Four laps after that, he's a minute clear of the field. He goes on to win the race by more than four minutes. Um, yes. And it's quite rightly regarded as one of the greatest victories in the history of the, Formula the, One. There is a photograph of him out, he's basically in the grandstands, a spectator, watching the race <laughs> for the bloke who comes second to come over the line. That's fantastic. Yeah. Nursing his broken wrist. So it's one of the biggest winning margins in F1 history. The biggest is... Must be the biggest. No. Is it not the biggest? Moss over Hawthorne. When? Where? 1958 Portuguese Grand Prix, 5 minutes, 12 seconds. Yeah, but that was a funny race, wasn't it? Because Hawthorne... Well, no, because it's the race where Hawthorne was disqualified, wasn't it? Because he reversed up the road and then Moss... It was appealed, and Moss spoke in his defences to appeal, and said he wasn't on the road; he was on the pavement. Technical, but he got mm. he got Hawthorne reinstated, and that's why Moss lost, lost the championship by a point. Yeah, I need to look into that. I need to know whether he was five minutes ahead on on merit or not. Mm. Can I just talk about two things about that '68 Nurburgring race? Not that I'm in any way trying to um, diminish Jackie's achievement, because I think it is genuinely one of the greatest achievements in all of, um, well, frankly, F1 racing history. Um, he himself said a lot of it was down to he had a Dunlop tyre, which other people didn't have. Mm. Um, and it was mega. And that really, really helped. Um, and the second thing was he had the wrist injury had happened, but he'd done races since then. I think the wrist injury was about three months old. Okay. Um, he'd, done, he'd raced at Spa. He'd won somewhere else. And then he got to the Nürburgring. And I think, I think even Jackie said this, or I have read that Jackie said this, is that he said he was really helped by the weather. Um, mm, yeah, because, of course, that you know, makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, and, that, you know, and, and that if it had been dry, and mm. he'd had to wrestle it around. So it was a scaphoid injury, I think. Do I mean a scaphoid injury? Anyway, it's, it, it's the kind of wrist injury you don't want. There's one which heals, very, which mm. heals quite fast and quite easily, and there's one which wasn't. So he would have certainly been troubled by it. Um, and it was by no means, you know, <laughs> helping him in any way. Um, but it, it had happened quite a long time before, and it wasn't mm. like this was like his first return to a racing car um, since it had happened. But even so. Yeah, yeah. but that's right. Pretty- if it was dry and you're wrestling with all that grip and the, you know, the loads through the steering are much heavier. Um, yeah. Yeah, a broken wrist is going to be much worse. But in the wet, yeah, it, it's probably the only reason he was able to go on and win that thing, wasn't it? Well, and the tyres. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's mega. Bloody hell. They were brave boys back then. They were. They were. Um, 1955 Argentina. Mm. Hottest Grand Prix on record. Do we know how hot? 40 degrees. Yeah. Warm. And had the, the, those Grand Prix cars, those 50s Grand Prix cars, front engine, they're kicking out a lot of heat. You've driven 
similar things, haven't you? Presumably, yeah, no, you just feel I, so much heat soak from the engine, you do. the transmission. Yeah, when the engine's in front of you, yeah, I mean, they're you know they're big, powerful things, um, yeah. and you know, and they don't put you know any, any sort of insulation between you and no. it. I mean, it's not like being in a closed car. Mm. Um, you know, the heat can escape, but even so, if you're working that hard, and I think the circuit in Argentina is a pretty tough circuit, um, in that heat. Um, and okay, they would have probably all been driving in shirt sleeves, but even so, they wouldn't have had, you know, triple layer Nomex on. Um, the astonishing fact about that race was it was so hot of all the drivers. I mean, a lot of drivers just pulled out and said, can't do it. Mm. Of all the drivers who started the race, only two, Fangio, who won it, and a bloke called Roberto Mieres, were the only two drivers who stayed in their car from start to finish. <laughs> So what would happen is that drivers would come in absolutely exhausted mm. and another driver who'd already come in because he was absolutely exhausted would have recovered a bit and would have jumped in their car. And so they were just sharing cars left, right and centre, which is why Maurice Trentino, <laughs> and I don't know another example of this having happened anywhere, I think he's the only person to have come both second and third in the same race. <laughs> yeah. Bloody hell. 40 degrees, big, heavy yeah. old cars... I mean, there, there's, there is footage of them slowing down. There's a corner, um, and there's footage of them slowing down almost to a standstill, so someone could literally chuck buckets of water over them. Mm. Bloody hell. Absolutely ridiculous. I yeah. mean, today, there's just no way they'd even think about racing in, the, in, you know, in, in, in those sorts of conditions when drivers are suffering that much. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, the, the difference is that um, drivers are so much fitter now. Yeah, yeah they're they athletes now, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. It's telling that <clears throat> so many of mine include the Nurburgring. Makes sense, doesn't it? Um, and this oh, is I know where you're going to go. I know where you're going to go now. <laughs> well, I'm hoping you can flesh out some of the details for me. Um, but this is, yeah, the Nurburgring, 1967, Marathon de la Route. Yeah. Um, 84-hour race. It's yes. really, But it's a sort of regularity thing, isn't it? It's not a flat-out sprint. Well, actually, I've, I've thought about this... And, and it kind of, it, it certainly wasn't officially billed as a race, but it had a winner, and the winner was the person who covered the most distance in that time. Yeah, okay. And you can only do that by driving faster than anybody else. If the time period is fixed, you can only cover a greater distance than the next person by going faster than them. So to me, it was a race. Yeah, okay. Even if it wasn't officially, and I suspect there would be, there would have been some technical reason, there'll be some rule in some rule book saying you can't have races more than 24 hours. There would have been some technical reason why they couldn't bill it as a race. Mm. That's my supposition. I don't know that to be true. But it was an 84 hour race. <laughs> That's three and a half days. Um, three and a half days. Half a week. Yeah. <laughs> a race going on for half a week. And then it's not like they stop overnight and let the cars rest and everyone else rest. They keep going all the way through. Um, this is on the combined Nordschleife and Sudschleife, um, so the very long Nürburgring. Um, and Porsche wanted to, well, durability test and prove to the world its new Sportomatic gearbox, which is yes. well, it's essentially a manual manual that you don't use a clutch pedal with, isn't it? Do you, you're probably do you remember the Saab Sensonic? No. Okay, it wasn't that long ago. It was probably just a bit before your time, but there was a Saab. What would it have been? A 9.3, I suppose, 900, something like that. Um, this is exactly that. You know, it, 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 it was a manual car, but it only had two pedals. Mm. Weird. Um, yeah. So, it, so there was, I think there was a pressure sensor in the, 
uh, in the gear lever. So the moment it felt your hand move it, it depressed the clutch um, and then re-engaged it when your hand released it. And there would have been some kind, I don't know whether it's a centrifugal clutch or something, but there would have been some way of it knowing when you're coming to a stop. Mm. But you couldn't um, rest your hand on the gear lever, could you? That wouldn't have been good. Yeah. No, I, I, I can't remember. I did drive the Saab. I've never driven a Sportomatic. I mean, it didn't last long. Um, mm. Porsche gave up on it quite quickly. Um, and other than Saab, who also gave up on it quite quickly, nobody ever felt the need to return to it. Mm. Um, but you can see why, can't you? Um, it's sort of, you know, instant smooth shifts. It's more space in your footwell. It's, you know, it's, it's less complication. Mm. But to me, it was always just a sort of like a pointless halfway house. I think yeah. if you go down that road, why don't you get an automatic? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, and so Porsche, the factory wanted, they, they had this thing in a 911R special car. Um, and yeah, I, so yeah, I, I, and the gearbox itself was never, ever available in no. a 911R. No. Um, for sale, the 911Rs were scarcely for sale. They made so few of them. But yes, absolutely. They, they, they put it in their full race 911. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And you, you read up about it, and actually half the reason for doing it is that when else are you going to get three and a half days on the Nürburgring without it costing you a fortune? Um, yeah. So it's a brilliant durability testing exercise. Um, and it's quick Vic Alford, Hans Hermann, and Jochen Nierspatch. Yeah. Um, it's the three of them sharing the car for three and a half days. Um, and the, the thing about the Marathon della Route is that it, it's sort of followed on from rallies like Liège, Rome, Liège, which morphed into Spa, Rome, Liège um, in the, around the 1930s. And, the, you know, they were great events. But later on, as the roads became busier, as attitudes changed, you couldn't do these things on public roads anymore. Um, and so organisers switched it to a purpose-built facility, the Nürburgring, um, and ran it for 84 hours. Um, and in those 84 hours... The 911R Trio covered 5,600 miles um, at an average speed of 67 miles an hour. Yeah. And Vic, I mean, yeah, fair play to Herman and Nearsbach, but the Vic was the hero of yeah. it. Because the, you know, the Nürburgring at night, we know what happens, is it, it, it rains and it gets foggy. And Vic did three consecutive seven and a half hour stints in the dark. So he did all that, because I mean, the other two just didn't want to drive at night. <laughs> Vic didn't care because he just give it to me. I'll drive at night. It's fine. Yeah. And so he did the he did all three nights on his own. Bloody hell! Yeah. And also the brilliant thing about it was when the car finally went over the line and won the race. You know, where Vic was gone. Brands Hatch <laughs> for another race. Yeah, he'd already buggered off. Bloody he'd done hell. his last night stint. So right, see you guys. Good luck. Um, enjoy yourself. And he was off winning something at Brands. It's amazing how well, these guys will do something like that and then disappear to do something else. You know? Yeah. We'd just crash for a week, wouldn't we? But I mean, well, I mean there, there were, okay, so another one of my heroes, Peter Revson. I mean, he used to do, I think in 1971, he did the full Formula One season. He did the full Can-Am championship. He was mm. doing lots of stuff in Trans-Am. He probably did some IndyCar as well. And he was just doing this, and he, he, he was basically commuting across the Atlantic, which wasn't like as quick or as comfortable as it is these days. Um, and just, I mean, even that in itself is another form of endurance, isn't it? Just being able yeah. to do that for a season. Yeah. And always being on top form everywhere you turn up, because, you know, that's what's expected of you. You are a, 
absolutely top draw professional racing driver and you can't say oh i'm terribly sorry i'm you know i'm a couple of seconds off the pace today but i didn't get much kip on the bomber last night mm. you've just got to be able to do it haven't you mm. Mm. and that's how they earned their living as well wasn't it it was not like they had yeah. multi-million dollar contracts racing in f1 or something they they raced in all these categories to get paid and earn a living um, and but also, perform, I mean, well, yeah, well, in, in Revson's case, I mean, he didn't need the money because oh, he was the, he the, the rev to the Revlon there, Empire. Yeah. Although his, although his, because his brother had been killed, uh, Doug Revson, he was, he was told that if he continued racing, that the family were not going to pay for any of it. Mm. Um, so he did, you know, he did trail around Europe in, a, in an old comma van with his F3 car behind him, and he did absolutely pay his dues. Um, but he did it because, you know, maybe in Revson's case, he did it because you know he wanted to prove. Um, to the world that he wasn't just this dilettante rich playboy, which he absolutely was not, um, and that he was as good as anybody out there. Mm. Um, and yeah, that's what it, that's what it was about for him. But yes, but, but for an awful lot of others, that's how they earn their living. Mm. That's yeah. where the work was. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Have you got any others you want to share with us? Um, have I got? A, yeah, there was a, a bloke called John Duff. Um, John Duff was the first person to win Le Mans in a Bentley. He's actually the first person to go to Le Mans and Bentley in 1923, and then he won the race in 24. Uh, in 1923, also in his three-litre Bentley, he decided to do some speed record breaking. So he went to Brooklands, and you couldn't run a car, because of noise regulations in Weybridge, you couldn't run a car uh, at Brooklands at night, um, which is why they never had 24-hour races. Uh, they had these called double twelves, where you'd run for a 12-hour stint, and then you park, everything would be put in part for a no one would be allowed to touch the cars, and then the race would resume literally as it had stopped, and they'd do another 12 hours the following day. And he did, in his three-litre Bentley, he was trying to break the outright distance record for distance covered in 24 hours. And he did 12 hours, and the car had an ill-fitting seat in it, and it was just an aluminium shell. And he was so uncomfortable, and in fact such a terrible state, um, by the end of his first hour stint, he had to be lifted out of the car. He had to be physically removed from the car. And everybody just said, well, that's it, it's over. Um, and they took him to a local pub, sort of parked him for a bit. And the following morning, downstairs, reporting for you, said, right, let's get back in the car. Um, got back in the car, did another 12 hours in it. I think he averaged 87 miles an hour in a three-litre <sighs> Bentley, which, you know, a normal three-litre Bentley, I think, would struggle to do 87 miles an hour at all. Mm. So his was presumably quite a hot one. And he averaged that for 24 hours split into two periods of 12. Uh, and indeed broke the absolute, not just the class record, but the outright record for the greatest distance ever travelled in that time. So, dude. Wow. I wonder if there were any, you know, Cannonball Run, um, that illegal race, New York to Los Angeles. Well, there will be, won't there? There will be examples of people taking that on. They do it in one hit. They barely stop. Um, yeah God I don't know just, does this stuff happen anymore do we get these no. feats of endurance anymore I don't think we no. do really do we no because too, I mean I'm slightly in two minds I mean the rules and the regulations just say you can't do it um, you know the, the more you have to have three drivers yeah um, you know you can't, you can't even have you know up until I think until about the early mid '80s, you could still do Le Mans too. But now you're mandated; you have to have three, and three have to drive it. And you have—I mean, yeah. even the silly racing that I do, like the Spa Six Hours, um, there is a maximum amount of time you're allowed to spend behind. You can split it into as many stints as you like, but there is a maximum amount of time you're allowed to spend behind the wheel. Yeah. Um, and it, my view of this has always been—it's a bit of a shame. 
because I've always taken the view that, you know, where safety is concerned, if the people taking the risks are the people who know the risks, i.e. the drivers, then you should let them get on with it. Um, I suppose there are, you know, if, if somebody is exhausted at Le Mans trying to do it solo these days and takes out somebody else, yeah. um, you know, I guess there are all sorts of reasons, probably quite good reasons. But to me, you know, these stories just don't happen anymore. You don't get these extraordinary tales of people doing stuff. You know, when you sit there and you think about what some of these people did, you know, think of, you know, old Eddie Hall, and his, age 50, and his Bentley droning around for 24 hours. I just, I simply don't know how he did it. Yeah. I just don't understand how you can physically stay awake, um, stay conscious. Just you know, and and I find because I always find the human dimension of racing, uh, practically so much more interesting than the racing itself. To me, it's not just about; it's never just about the driver, the, the driving. It's always about the drivers. And you know, these stories are you just don't, you can, you can, you're not allowed to do them anymore. And. There are still, thank goodness, some extraordinary things that people do with machinery. Um, you know, I've just been out watching the Dakar Rally, and that is ridiculous. Um, and, you know, anyone who's been to the Isle of Man to see the TT will see people, human beings do things which will frighten you to your core. But these are increasingly isolated yeah. incidents. I've just heard, I, 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 somebody told me that... Um, long-distance bike road racing on motorbikes in Northern Ireland isn't going mm. to happen anymore because the insurance is yeah. just got prohibitively expensive. Um, yeah. yeah. But there's a, so, I, I think there's a crowdfunding thing to try and make it happen, which would be great because it's, it's such a shame if we lose these sort of heroic um, events because they are becoming fewer and further between. And what's left? What's left? You know, yeah. we, we, we find ourselves scratching around trying to find stories and you know and, and increasingly you know you, I mean the, the majority of the things we've been talking about today you know happened a very long time ago didn't they mm. oh yeah well I was thinking I was just looking I think my re- most recent one was Louder 1976 yeah <laughs> it's not a couple of years ago is it um, no. and today there would have been some I don't know some edict there would have been some who said don't be ridiculous you're not getting in the car yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no question about it. Mm. Um, okay, well, let's leave that one there. I, I know um, you've got a BMW M3 Touring sat outside. Have you had a go in it yet? No. No, okay. that's why I'm in a bit of a hurry to wind this up because <laughs> I, 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 I'm about to uh, beetle off to Silverstone in it. And uh, yes, looking forward to it very much. Okay, we'll talk about it next week then. Yeah. Um, so, got a listener question coming up. And actually, it's potentially, depending on the answer a feat of great driving endurance, but we'll have to leave that one to you in a moment. Um, and so leaves me then just to ask you all to rate and review the podcast. Um, doesn't take you long, but it really helps us. That's how we find new listeners. Um, and actually we're growing. The audience, the podcast audience is growing and there's no question. It's in part to all of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast because it really helps. Um, and also go and check out the dash intercooler.com. It's our beautiful website, um, and it's the world's only ad-free digital car magazine. Um, you can start your one-month free trial and see what it's all about. So go and do that today, please. Um, so the listener question, um, it comes from WJ. Um, this is a famous story, isn't it? 1953, Le Mans. Um, Duncan Hamilton, Tony Rolt. Yes. They won in a Jaguar. Yes, they did. But the, the idea was that they... And now, what's the background here? Did they they were expecting to race? They 
thought they weren't going to because the car broke or can, something. Can I, can, I, can I hear the question first? Yes. Were they really drunk? Okay. Um, were they really drunk? Uh, right. Okay, fine. So what happened was, um, so, so there's a sort of, there, there, there's a true bit and there's a not true bit. The true bit is that they were slung out of the race. It was, uh, not because the car broke, it was in scrutineering. Um, mm. I think, how can I put this? It, it's it's not entirely impossible that the French weren't necessarily that keen to see um, <laughs> a Jaguar win the car, win, win the race again, um, or maybe that's just casting aspersions. But anyway, so they, so they did get chucked out, um, but they were readmitted, and they did go off and they did win the race. So all that's true. Um, what is absolutely not true is the story that because they've been chucked out, that. Um, that Duncan Hamilton and Tony Rolt, um, Tony Rolt, absolute hero. Um, you know, he is a man who stayed behind at Dunkirk to fend off the Panzers, got captured, ended up in Colditz, helped design the Colditz glider. He won the British Empire Trophy before the war in an ERA, aged 19, and then won the, uh, won the war in 1953 uh, in the race we're talking about. So the idea was that they went off and they got absolutely plastered <clears throat> during the course of which the cars got readmitted um, and somebody had to go off and found these two, you know, on their knees outside a bar, drowning in pastis or whatever it was they were drinking. And they staggered back to their feet, you know, tipped a bottle of cold water over their heads, had a cup of back coffee, got in the race and went and won it. Yeehaw. Isn't that great? What a wonderful story. <laughs> Only Except- problem is it's total cobblers. It's <laughs> oh. absolute rubbish. Um, but the reason people believe it is where it came from. Because it came from Duncan Hamilton. Mm. The story was written like that by Duncan Hamilton in his highly creative autobiography um, called Touchwood. And it's a great read. It's a really, really great read. But just don't take it too seriously. If you do take it too seriously and you're the editor of a car magazine and you print it, mm. which is what I did when I was editing motorsport um, in this story I wrote, which I entitled Drunken Charge, which I thought was quite... Um, quite funny. What yep. you do is you really upset the Rolt family. Um, mm. And Stuart Rolt, um, Tony's son, got in touch to say, I can't believe you perpetuated this nonsense. It's not true. My father, I think he was still alive at the time. He um, must have been actually, because he said that his father was very upset that this, was, this, 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 this fiction was still being peddled. And I stupidly, I just thought, well, you know, Duncan Hamilton was there. This isn't like sort mm. of secondhand Chinese whispers. He was there. He was in the car. And it's in his autobiography. So how can it not be true? It was, you know, this was an autobiography, mm. many editions old. So how, if it hadn't been true, why hadn't it been edited out? So I just, I, I just took it, took him at his word. And it was rubbish. Ah, I think that's story. fair enough. Yeah, it's fair enough from your point of view, though, isn't it? Because you've got, you've got it firsthand. It, it, you, you would assume it's credible coming from one of the two people involved. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah. It's unfortunate, isn't it? So not Didn't true. happen. Didn't happen. Mm. Okay. Well, there I we go. suspect, I suspect, because I don't think he would have just completely and utterly made it yeah. up, and I don't know any of this, but I suspect it was just a wild exaggeration. So they probably did toddle off somewhere and have a noggin. They probably, yeah. you know, they, they probably were nursing, at what part of the world they're in, they're probably nursing a little, a, a pity calva or something. Um, mm. 
but that was nothing compared to what people did in that rate at that time. So yeah, so I suspect that the, yeah, they probably had had a drink, but you know they were not even drunk, let alone falling down drunk. So yeah, no, okay. sorry, not a word of truth in it. Well, there we go, WJ. We put that one to bed once and for all. Um, thank you for your question. Get your questions across. We'll do it again next week. Bye. Bye.